0: Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21, and you can find it on page 568 in the paper Bible. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, good morning. So my name is Stephen. If you guys are new or visiting, I want to welcome you guys. We have been in our study of, in the book of Ephesians, for the past 13 weeks. It's been 13 weeks, and today we are at the end of the series where Paul is sending a letter to the church in Ephesus, a letter that is to the church about the church. And what Paul has been doing up to this point is that he's been telling us in as many ways as the human mind can conjure up How much God loves us, that we are secure, that we are protected. Because Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, but didn't. And Jesus died the harsh, sinful death that we should have died, but now no longer need to, because we are now secure in the hands of God. This is a letter to the church about the church. You know, earlier we saw in chapter 3 that God, for whatever reason, has chosen to make known his multifaceted, uh, plan, his manifold wisdom through his church. Now, this is crazy to me. I've been in the church for a while. I've been around in different churches, and there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of issues going around in the church, right? We argue. There are divisions in the church. There are arguments. We argue about the color of the carpet. Not so much here, but we argue about the temperature in the room, whether it's too hot or too cold, we fight about the fact that the music—it's too contemporary, or it's not enough. Whatever the case that it may be, God, for some reason, has decided to reveal His global, cosmic plan of redemption through the church, and we are the church. And as the church, we have been invited. We are participating now in a plan that God has made in the great mission of God. So Paul has been laying down the foundation during this time of who God is and what His story is all about. So in chapter 1, we saw a few weeks ago that we have been chosen by God, redeemed by His Son, and 3, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is God's uh, story at work in our lives. And then in chapter 2, we saw that we have been made alive by God, and this has nothing to do with how good we are, nothing to do with how smart or moral or good-looking Nothing to do with that. This is all God's doing. God made us alive in Christ. He raised us up with Christ and has seated us positionally with Christ in the heavenly places. Um, which means that now you are treated, when God sees you, you are now treated as if you had done everything Christ had done. So now he delights over you. He accepts you. God loves you and he delights and rejoices over you the same way he rejoices over his son. We have been made. We have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus, and God has now reconciled to one another through the work of Jesus on the cross. So everything that Paul has been writing about, like I said, has been just laying the foundation to the story of God. So we come to our text today, which marks the end of the first half of Ephesians, and uh, everything that Paul has written has been coming up to this moment to this crescendo of how he ends this chapter with a beautiful doxology of praise of how God is accomplishing things, of who he is, and what he has done. So we're going to read this today. We're going to see in our passage today in verses 20 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, join me in chapter 3. I think I left my Bible right here. Thank you. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, let me ask you guys a question Why do you pray? Now I'm not asking this, I'm not asking for a theology of prayer or the the theological reasons why we ought to pray, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, I think it's really important that we have a robust theology of prayer, but just on a practical, everyday level, why is it sometimes that we find it hard to pray? Why do we go through the trouble of praying? And sometimes I, I ask myself, you know, why do I even bother to pray? You know, maybe for you, you've been praying about something for years. Uh, maybe you've been praying about a job opportunity. Maybe a relocation within your company. And you've been praying and praying, wanting to know if this is something that you ought to be doing. So you're like, God, God, would you just tell me what the next steps are? God, can you show me what I need to do? And the more you pray, the less clarity you have. Why bother? Or maybe you're praying for that family member or a co-worker for the Lord to save them and it's been years and you've been praying and asking for years and nothing's changed and you're starting to think that this person is unsavable you know one author puts it this way there's a quiet cynicism or spiritual wariness that develops in us when heartfelt prayers go unanswered we keep our doubts hidden even from ourselves because we don't want to sound like bad Christians there's no reason to add shame to our cynicism so our hearts shut down So again, I I wrestle with this from time to time, and I think if we're being honest with ourselves, I think we all think about these things, and we feel weird even just vocalizing it, right? Why bother to pray? You know, and the thing, the reason why it makes it awkward is because we know why we should pray. God tells us to pray. It's in His Word. Yet so often we feel disconnected in our spirits, and we feel this tension, and it's this thing that we wrestle with in our daily lives, and we come across texts like Matthew 7 where Jesus says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to us. And we're like, God, I'm, I'm asking but it doesn't feel like I'm getting or receiving. Um, God, I feel like, I don't feel this change that's happening in my heart and it's not happening in the things that I'm praying about. There can just be this disconnect in our prayer life. And it can feel like God's expectation of us is just way too high. And again, if we're being honest with ourselves, we all wrestle with this to some extent. You know, sometimes we could also even blame our culture, the American culture, let alone the culture of Boston, right? Where it makes it hard to pray because we prize and we value accomplishments. We value getting things done. We value getting, being active. We even value running as a lifestyle, right? How many of us in this room own a pair of New Balances? We love our New Balances here, right? Right? We wear them for all occasions. And it looks funny, but don't get me wrong. I mean, who am I to blame? I'm not going to say anything about fashion here, right? right? Who knows? But it makes sense because it's hard for us because prayer is just simply talking to God and it doesn't keep pace with our active lifestyle. It's not as fast as we want it to be. And God's expectation of us to continually pray, as he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we should constantly be in prayer, seems a little bit unrealistic, especially when we don't see him responding the way we want him to. God, it feels like your expectations are just way too high. But I want to suggest, I think the problem with our prayer life doesn't lie with our culture, although that may be a factor, or God's high expectations of us. But rather, I think the problem with our prayer life lies with the condition of our hearts. See, it's a heart that expects too little from God. It sees God as too small. We're not praying to the God of the Bible. We're not praying to the creator, the king of the universe, and we're certainly not praying to the God that Paul is praying to in this text. So today in our text, we're going to see how Paul approaches the throne of grace. And we're going to see that he approaches God with a view of God's greatness. We're going to see that. And that you and I, if we ever hope to have a vibrant, robust prayer life, our expectations of God need to be elevated. We need to have a bigger vision for who God is. We need to be reminded actually who we are praying to, who we are calling out to, and who we are living for the glory of. Our expectations are too low. So this is what I want us to fight to see and believe today. God exceeds our expectations. Today we have three points, and we're going to get through this pretty quickly because the passage is only two verses. Okay, so point number one, we're going to begin in verse 20, and we're going to start by looking at God's power. Here the Apostle Paul tells us to praise God for his unlimited ability. He writes, Now to him who is able. Notice how he chooses to express how able that is. Uh, One commentator writes, Paul's own rhetorical ability is stretched to a breaking point as he attempts to express his vision. He gropes for the highest form of comparison available. In other words, Apostle Paul is not saying, uh, not only does he say God is able to do all that we ask and think, but he goes a step further, he says, God is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask and or think Think about it this way, you know, think about a young couple in love, they're on the phone, they have to hang up, and so they say, oh, No, know, I, I miss you, and the other person says, no, I miss you more, no, I miss you so much more, I miss you really, really so much. Paul is kind of doing the same thing here. He's kind of said, all right, God can do exceedingly more, but he's gone a step beyond that, and he's gone to the max so much more that his words kind of breaking apart here. He's saying far more abundantly than all that we can think or ask. So what's his point? His point is that God is all-powerful. His point is that when the people of God go to God in prayer, when they have a big prayer, and maybe this is something that think that this is just hopeless, he wants them to know that his power is never to be in question. It is only a matter of his good and perfect will because his power is absolutely limitless. And this is, so, this is so important for Christians to know because sometimes we go to the Lord with prayers and we feel so hopeless. You know, we, it might be a deep wound to our soul because we had something painful that happened this past week. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you were betrayed by a friend. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you've been struggling with this same sin over and over and now you're just kind of ashamed to bring this prayer to the Lord. Paul wants you to understand that God's power is not in question as to His ability to answer. He is able. We go on to point 2 in verse 20. He says that God's power, this power for which you're praising Him, is already at work within you. Now, this power was referenced to us in chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul writes, "...these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ." When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is saying, do you know what power is at work within you? The same power that raised Christ from the dead, that power is at work within you. And sometimes it's hard for us to believe that that power is at work within us. We look at ourselves and say, come on, Paul. I've been struggling with the same sin for the past five years. I'm not loving my spouse. I'm not loving my children or my neighbors the way I ought to. We're not caring for one another like we ought to. The church isn't all right. Church is a mess. Paul, what do you mean that the power of resurrection is at work within us? And Apostle Paul responds to us and will say, Yes, it is the very power of God that raised Christ from the dead that seated him at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that power is at work within you. You know, for the original audience, the Ephesian Christians, I don't think they could have foreseen what was coming. Could they have imagined that a number of years from that moment, when they received the letter, that an 86-year-old man who had come up under the ministry of the gospel would stand in front of the Roman consul and he would be told, Polycarp, you renounce Christ or die. Could they have imagined him saying in front of the Roman government that I have served the Lord Jesus Christ for 86 years and he has done me no harm. How could I refuse him now? Basically sealing his death as martyr. Could they have perhaps imagined the coming of Augustine, of Calvin, Luther, Spurgeon, of Whitfield, and the great host of martyrs and preachers and Christians? Could they have imagined that today in this world that we have two billion people today professing the name of Jesus Christ? In the same way, God is saying, don't doubt. My power is at work within you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, that seated him in the heavenly places, that power is at work, and everything that I attempt to accomplish in you, I will do it. Then we get to point three in verse twenty-one. Paul says, "To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus." What Paul is saying is that God's glory is displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and he's also saying God's glory is displayed in the church, the people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a humbling thought. Think about it. God's glory is displayed in the church, in us, in you guys, trusting and resting in Christ for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. God is glorified when we come together as a body and worship his name. God is glorified when we do outreach, when we do evangelism, when we do discipleship together. God's glory is on display, and it is found in his church God's glory is also displayed when we have people from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from different cultures coming together, rallying around Jesus Christ and loving one another because they share the need for the gospel. See, the gospel, the God's glory is displayed for all to see and the world is shown His glory. This is the God to whom Paul prays. This is the view of the greatness of God That Paul has in mind when he's making these prayer petitions for his people. God is able to do not just a little bit more than what we ask, not all that we think and ask, but far more abundantly than all we think and ask. This is the God who loves us. This is the God who has chosen us, the God who redeemed us, and the God who has sealed us. He exceeds the expectations of his people. So, when we ask ourselves, why even bother to pray? We need to remind ourselves, this is a God who exceeds the expectations of His people. In moments where we don't believe that He's able to heal our pains, our hurts, our sicknesses, He is more than able to bring healing and restoration into your lives. When you and I go before Him and ask Him to, for the things that will further His plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus, We need to remember who it is that we are praying to, who it is we are calling out to. God exceeds the expectations of his people, and we find this in Scripture. When the Israelites rebelled against God, they deserved the wrath of God, but God extended mercy. They expected wrath. They expected punishment, but God extended mercy and grace. When his people wandered away, he pursued them. When they rebelled against him, what did he do? He forgave them. And this story reminds me a lot of the story in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And you guys all know this. Son comes to the father. Demands the that he gets his share of the inheritance. And he wants it right then, right now. So the father says, okay, here's your portion of the inheritance. So the son took all the money all the gold, all the property, and he goes on a journey to a distant land. And when he gets to that distant land, he just absolutely gets rid of every bit of that money, all of that gold. He squanders it. He wastes it. He parties it away. He gives it away. And he lost everything. And he is left with nothing. A famine comes. And now he absolutely has nothing for his name. Nothing left to do except to eat with what the pigs eat. This is where he finds himself, dining with pigs lost. And then a thought comes into my mind. My goodness, what have I done? Why, why am I dining with swine when I can be at home with dad? So he has this light bulb moment that goes off in his mind. He's thinking, okay, this is what I'll do. I'm not worthy to be, son, be, to be his son, but maybe, maybe dad will take me in as his hired hand. And so he begins to rehearse this story in his mind. He begins to rehearse how he's going to make a plea with his dad because in his mind, the expectation of his dad is that he's going to be very upset with him. He's going to be mad about the fact that he lost all his money. So he his head is hung low. He starts walking home and he's practicing out loud what he's going to say to his dad. And he just knows his dad's just going to be so upset with him. And then, he looks up and off in the distance, he sees his father running to him. And his father approaches him, puts his arms around his neck, and says, Son, I love you, right? You must have blisters on your back. Here, take this rope and put it around you. Your fingers, they're all cracked and messed up. Here, I know you've been through a lot. Here's some gold. Here's some jewelry for your fingers, right? He exceeded expectations. Your feet they're messed up. I know you've been through a lot. Here's some shoes. The father exceeded the expectations of the son. You see, the son only had one view. He knew he messed up, so he expected the father to be angry with him. But the father was filled with compassion. And not only do that, here's what the father does to go above and beyond what he ever thought was possible. He threw the wildest, crazy, most amazing party that you can ever throw because his son was lost, but now he is home. This is a picture of our God. This is our God who exceeds our expectations every moment of every day. Can you imagine what it would look like when you you go before the Lord and you pray, believing that God can exceed your expectations? Listen, I'm not talking about that name and claim theology here, right? This is not about making a name for yourself or getting yourself all the glory or making you live the life of the rich and famous. I'm not talking about that. Paul's not talking about that because he concludes by saying, to him be the glory. This is the story of God. This is the story of how God is able. Verse 21, to him be the glory and the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So let's pray with urgency. Let's pray that God is able to heal a disease that we feel or think that is incurable. Let's pray and believe that God can save the hardest of hearts. Let's pray and believe that God is able to do exceedingly more than we can ever think or ask. This is the God we worship And this is the God we serve. Let's pray. But Father God, your glory is displayed when sinners are brought out of deserved condemnation into adoption as sons and daughters, forgiven of their sins, and transformed by God's Holy Spirit. God, we were made to delight in you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do the work that only you can. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.